I love stories. Don't you? We read them. We watch them. We tell them. Of all the things that sets us humans apart from the rest of creation, one of the most fundamental issues is that we tell stories. No other creatures that we know tell stories the way we do. I mean, I guess it's possible that some plants and animals tell stories, but they're not telling us. We're not, <laughs> we're not a part of that exchange. Whether we know it or not, whether we intend to do this or not, to be a human is to live your life immersed in stories. We live our lives telling them. In fact, we don't really know how to function as humans and not tell stories. And we tell stories for lots of reasons. Certainly, we do it for entertainment's sake. Lois Shank cannot wait until 9 o'clock tonight. And the story of Downton Abbey continues. And that's important. Stories for entertainment. Whether it's cavemen sitting around the fire and scratching them on the wall. Or it's you watching your favorite show at night. This is a fundamental thing that humans do. Is we entertain often at the end of the day with stories. Some of you weirdos entertain yourselves with sad stories. Some of us more righteous people do it with funny stories. And we resist. Call the midwives. Who wants to watch that stuff? <laughs> Babies being born in abject poverty and lots of crying and screaming. Not to pick on Janelle or anybody else. <laughs> and that's an important thing to do is... To tell stories and enjoy them for relaxation and for joy and delight and laughter. But the stories that we tell and that we listen to, the stories we immerse ourselves in, we do a lot more with them than entertain ourselves. You see, each of us has a narrator. He's not shy. She's not quiet. He's there. She's always there. Each of us have this personal narrator inside of us, informing us of the life we're living. And the, and the narrator doesn't always use words. Sometimes it's in our emotions. Sometimes it's in our imaginations, in our memories, and in our hopes. Sometimes the narration comes through loud and clear in the raw primal fear we experience. In our joys. Each of us lives in a story. A story that we believe we occupy. Now, we're not always conscious of this. Some of you know this about me. If I'm not talking, it's just utter darkness in my mind. I, to um, think before you speak, I really can't. Um, and I'm not saying that as a joke. I'm just one of these people that is on the extreme end of verbal processing. If you ask us to think for a few seconds and then say what we believe, if my mouth isn't moving, there's nothing happening. <laughs> now, Janelle, when we were early in our marriage and we would have discussions... Um, and she wasn't talking, I would be like, what, what are you doing? Just tell me something. She'd be like, be quiet, you're interrupting. And I'm like, how can I be interrupting? You're not saying anything. And I discovered being married to Janelle, there's some of you weirdos out there that you have a constant dialogue going on inside your head. And what comes out is only the tip of the iceberg. Well, what comes out of me is everything that's going on inside my head. We all have this narrator 
And it doesn't always use words, but it's there. And if you want to be truly human, truly yourself, if you want to live faithfully and creatively in the multiple roles of your life, wife, husband, child, student, parent, teacher, engineer, doctor, businessman, businesswoman, therapist, artist, if you want to live faithfully and joyfully and creatively into your roles in life, then a fundamental issue has to be to attend to the story you believe you're living in. Because it will determine so much. Now what does this have to do with the part of the Bible that we've just heard read that we're attending to this morning? Look at the gospel passage that, we've, that we heard. Luke chapter 3 verse 21 to 38. I've been preaching through Luke. Since the end of November, and we've made it through most of three chapters. Here we are at the end of the third chapter. It's all been about preparation to hear Jesus' message, to see him clearly. First, we're told in Luke's gospel about his miraculous birth. And then we're told about his cousin, John, who plays this role in preparing people, including us, to see Jesus clearly, to hear him clearly, to see and hear him for who he truly is. And now here we are at the end of Luke chapter 3. We're right on the cusp of those famous three years in Jesus' life that have so deeply impacted this world. And in this portion of scripture, right before we get there to that whole stretch of Jesus' life from 30 to 33 that so shaped our world, here we are right on the cusp of this. And we get a story about Jesus' baptism, followed by a Mennonite portion of Scripture, a genealogy, the name game. And in both the baptism and in the genealogy, what's happening? We are being drawn back into the story that precedes. Every line evokes the backstory. Every phrase that Art read to us, every phrase of Luke chapter 3 verses 21 through 28 is either an echo or a quote or an allusion or a direct reference to the backstory. All this bit in my Bible, in your Bible, that precedes this passage. Look at the baptism account. There's two sections that aren't read to us. Baptism and genealogy. Look at the baptism. It's one long sentence. We're told Jesus is a part of a crowd of folks who were baptized. Luke's not even really focused on the baptism. What he's really focused on is these three final clauses. The heavens are opened. The Holy Spirit descended like a dove. And then there's this voice from heaven. Now, each of these clauses... The opening of heaven, the descent of the dove, the voice from heaven. Each of them is echoing or alluding to or quoting a preceding event in the biblical story. Take, for example, the opening of heaven. This is the long-awaited answer to Israel's prayer. Listen to Israel's prayer several centuries before this. Oh God, would you please rend the heavens and come down? This is the same word. Opening the heavens and come down. And there God comes down. This is God answering the long cry of Israel. 
And Luke describing it in a way that the reader would recognize this as an answer to a previous moment's cry in the story. And then there's the descent of the dove. Where else do we see God hovering? Anybody know? Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. God creates all of the universe in a raw material state. And then it says his spirit hovers. It's the image of a dove. Could God be doing this again? Could once again God be doing something so utterly powerful, the only analog is the initial act of creation? And then what about this voice from heaven? Well, we don't even have time to unpack that. I wrote one version of this sermon where we just focused on that. It's, it's all over the Bible. We heard one of the passages read out of Isaiah. These, it's, 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 we heard another one read in, in Psalm 2. It, it, it draws on multiple fecund, nodal moments in the backstory to say, you got to know that stuff to get this. Now, what I'm saying is that every phrase of this moment right before Jesus begins his three years of vocation as the son of God, the Messiah of this world, that every phrase here draws us back into the long, complex story the Bible's been telling. And then you get the genealogy. Just in case you didn't know enough to know those phrases were supposed to draw you back. What is this genealogy doing? For some of you who've read the Bible, it it provoked in you memories of those characters. It opened up their moment in the story. What What is Luke doing? Why doesn't he let us get on with the important stuff? You know, the, the magic deliverances and, and the miracles and the crucifixion. Why does he insist? What is he doing? He's saying, hey, this is that story. If you can't root Jesus in that story, you're missing. You see, the Bible is not an encyclopedia. It's a novel. It's a story, a single story. It's the one true story. And if you don't read it that way, you will twist it. Now, obviously, not all of the Bible is in the form of story. But what I'm saying is the whole Bible is held together by the backbone of a story. And all those little offshoots, those psalms, those poems, those tragedies, those little vignettes, those histories, those genealogies, those prophecies, what holds them all together is a single, sprawling, capacious meta-narrative. That's what fits the Bible together. So we've got to learn to be, read the Bible this way, as a single story telling us what is real. Telling us how this world was meant to be. Telling us what's wrong with this world and what the creator has done and is doing to fix this world so that everything will work out the way it's supposed to in the end. The story the Bible tells is that there is only one God. And only this God described in the Bible is the true God. And he made the whole world and he made it good. He made it so very good. And now evil and death and pain and suffering and disease and injustice are ruining this world. But this God, this one true God has taken charge of this world in and through the life of Jesus Christ. Through his life, his death, his resurrection. And so 
all of the ancient prayers, all of the ancient hopes, all of the ancient tears, all of the ancient longings, that entire primal collective human awareness for the way things are meant to be, all of that is culminating in Jesus Christ in this moment. So here's, so what we're seeing here is that this rending of heaven and this descending of the spirit and this voice, what we're seeing is that God's plan to put the world right is being launched at long last. He has grasped the world in this moment in a new way to sort it out and to fill it up with his glory and his justice and his peace and his beauty. He's doing what he always promised he would do. Now, going back to where we started. If you want to be a human, a true human, truly human, truly yourself, if you want to live faithfully and creatively into the multiple roles of your life, a child, a student, a neighbor, a financial planner, a lawyer, a nurse, if you want to live faithfully and joyfully and creatively into your role in life, then a fundamental issue is to attend to the story you believe. The story that motivates you and interprets your experiences. And this is where it gets really tricky. Because we live in a society that is militantly telling a different story. And so we're here this morning. And we have been immersed in competing stories. But this morning, all through this service, and the songs we sing, and the prayers we pray, and all of these scripture passages, and the whole drama, this service is a drama. The whole thing, it's immersing us in the story of the Bible. We're singing it, and reading it, and acting it. And all week long, we're bombarded with other stories. Stories the world is telling about itself and about us. And so we've got to get to where we are more and more comfortable with this story and more and more skeptical of the story that Downton Abbey is telling. And in, in all of our favorite movies, which definitely keep watching, other than this, you're, got, you're not going to find any pure story. You're going to find stories that have moments in them that line up, but you've got to figure that out. And the answer is not to, not to back into some cultural ghetto where you don't listen to any story from the world. The answer is to get so immersed in this story that you can know the moments when the world is telling it slanted. And how do we do that? How do we grow so at home in the biblical story that it actually becomes our dominant story so that we can watch our favorite TV shows and enjoy them and laugh and cry and connect with them? How do we get so at home in the biblical story that it becomes our story? The biblical story becomes a lens through which we interpret our world. That's what Luke is trying to do with Jesus here. That's why line upon line upon line, that's why he forces you to listen to a genealogy. He's pounding away like waves on the seashore saying it's the story, it's the story, it's the story. If you don't get the story right, you're going to make Jesus into your homeboy. 
You're going to live in an advanced case of syncretism where Jesus gets co-opted by the stories of our culture. You've got to immerse yourself in this. And when we do, when we take the time to immerse ourselves in the biblical story, when this story we're reading here this morning overflows the worship service and goes into your daily devotions and goes into your small groups and you put it on the walls of your house and you talk about it with your children, when it overflows and it becomes the thickest story that you're involved in, then suddenly your eyesight gets clearer. Then suddenly you begin to see things As they truly are. And let's not take it for granted that just because we know the story of the Bible, let's not take it for granted that we actually indwell it. Because there's a lot of people growing up in Sunday school who can quote chapter and verse, but they're living in an entirely different story. No, we've got to work very, very, very hard and very, very, very creatively. We've got to use every artist in our church. We've got to use every wordsmith in our church. We've got to use the architecture of our homes. We've got to use the way we spend our time and the way we function with our bodies. We've got to work very hard and very creatively to entrench an understanding of the Bible as the grand story. Let's not make the mistake of thinking that if we understand something, we've actually got it. There's a world of difference between understanding the Bible as the true story of the world and actually thinking out of it and living out of it. Let me give you, for the rest of the sermon, one example that's embedded in this story of the baptism of Jesus. Let me talk about shame. Is my son, my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. It should echo in your mind. This is the healing of the great exile of the garden. When the father said to Adam, the son of God, out. And suddenly here, we see the reversal of that. We see that the second Adam has come along. And the banner over this Adam is my son, my beloved son, whom I love. Shame. If you have your Bible, a Bible, turn to the beginning. Genesis chapter 2. The la- Let's look at the last verse of Genesis 2. Now, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. These two chapters give us two complementary, coordinated accounts of creation. And the last thing we're told in this bifocal view of creation, the last thing we're told in this rich, thick, two-dimensional theological account of creation, the last thing we're told is what? The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Surely, God wants to register in our imagination the role of shame in the subsequent narrative. If it's the last thing he mentions before it cruises out of its introduction. Now jump over to Daniel chapter 12. If you need to use your table of contents, go ahead and use that. Daniel chapter 12. This is a description that God provided to the nation of Israel of what it would be like one day when he heals the world. Daniel chapter 12 verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth 
people who've died, shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn away to righteousness, turn many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. Now clearly there's much going on here, but did you notice that the story the Bible tells begins in a creation void of shame and will end in a creation will some will once again experience that. And some, can you imagine? The dominant note of their eternal existence will become shame. Now clearly, this is a lot to think through. Go to the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. The next to last chapter of Bible here again is a description of what life will be like when God completes his work of healing this world. And it says in Revelation 21 verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Shame. Gone. If we can't come to understand shame in the context of the biblical story, we have no hope but to experience shame as a powerful driving force telling a different story. The stories our society tells us consider shame in a very different way than the biblical story considers shame. For example, if your basic understanding of the world is shaped, whether you know it or not, by the rationalist humanist story, which begins in our evolutionary past and sees history in terms of the progressive development of human mastery over nature by science and technology that's supposed to lead the world to freedom and material prosperity, still waiting on that enlightenment promise. If you have this naturalistic evolutionary framework, now, let me stop and make sure you understand something at the risk of ticking some of you off. I think the scientific theory of evolution is the best account for the differentiation of the species. My own views fit within what you would call theistic evolution. And I know a lot of people in this church agree with me. And I know some of you in this church disagree with me. It's all right. We can laugh at each other for being wrong on this one. What I'm talking about this morning is not the scientific theory of evolution. I'm talking about the philosophical view of evolution as the master answer to all the meaning questions in life. I'm talking about naturalism. A primary story our world tells is the story of naturalism, of naturalistic evolution. If you have this view, if you have a naturalistic evolutionary framework, you might not even have ever strung those words together. But if you have this view, and it's the dominant view being told in our schools, in our universities, and in most of our churches, even the anti-evolution churches, if you have this view, the problem is it goes nowhere. It ends with the earth and humanity either flaming out, freezing up, or being destroyed by God in some rapture moment. And we're left to make up our own existential meaning while we wait for the end to come. If that's the story we're living in, shame might be an interesting topic for discussion. 
But for the most part, it simply plays the role of, of emotional nausea. But you see, when we take the biblical story seriously and we live out of the biblical story, then we see, we actually begin to see that shame is a primary tool leveraged by evil to bend us toward brokenness. I mean, how else do you account for the last word before sin being no shame? We begin to see in the biblical story that the devil uses shame as a disintegrating force. It disintegrates our minds. It disintegrates our relationships. It disintegrates our identities. It disintegrates our communities. In the Bible we see that evil has been wielding shame from the very beginning to corrupt God's good and beautiful creation. Listen to this passage of scripture from Revelation 12, verse 9. You don't have to turn there, just listen. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and the Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his church have come for the accuser of our brothers. Has been thrown down. Who accuses them day and night. Shame. This weapon. This tool. The Bible calls the Satan. The devil. The accuser. The devil uses shame to shear off our joy. You're going along at your job and you love your job and then something happens and joy just gets sheared off and you can't get up in joy again. Shame prevents us from using the gifts we've been given by our creator and those gifts were meant to enable us to flourish as light-bearing communities of Jesus, followers of him who work to create space for others who wish to join in the kingdom in which they are healed of shame. What I'm saying is that the Bible offers us a way not only to understand shame, but to effectively put it to death. To actually know and believe and live like the banner of the creator over us is is love. So that the narrator in our life reminds us of that over and over and over that we are pleasing to the Father. When you were baptized, God's banner over you was love and it will forever be the same from that day forward. And we've got to believe that biblical story. We can do this. The Bible gives us a way to put to death shame and it might take a lifetime to pull that off. The ravages of shame in our life do not disappear. They have to be dismantled. But from the beginning, it has been God's purpose for this world that it will be a world of emerging goodness and beauty and joy. And yet evil has wielded shame as a primary weapon to see that it never happens again. The last message before sin was unashamed in the key moment at the beginning of Jesus' temptation. There's no shame here, son. And then once again in Luke's gospel, right before he gets to Jerusalem in the cross, once again, my son. He 
in Jesus, we can find deliverance from shame, from the shame that sets in unexpectedly when we feel powerless. From the shame that's at the root of our feelings of perpetual inadequacy. From the shame that drives us to be people pleasers and that drives us to nuke relationships as soon as they get close. Jesus really came to deliver us from shame. And in our deliverance from shame, we are not simply liberated to be nicer, happier people, but we are redeemed so that we can live into the multiple roles of our life, from citizen to colleague to secretary to grandparent to potter to sculptor to gardener and homemaker. God delivers us. The Father delivers us and He offers us the power of the Spirit through His Son so that we can be joyfully creative, surprisingly courageous and really, really tough in in tough times. Now, you might not be familiar with the biblical story or you might not really, really believe this story. Well, the, the good news is you're in good company. Welcome to the Church of the Incarnation. There are many of us here for whom there are days when we have a hard time really believing that justice will ever happen. There are many of us in this room for whom there are days we have a hard time believing that the very nature of this world is such that God will win. The nature of this world is such that it takes near Herculean effort to hold this conviction that God is truly loving and that Jesus is the Son of God and that here at His baptism, God did rend the heavens and start the new creation and inaugurate His kingdom and that we can step into that and draw down on the power of forgiveness and love and joy and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control and we can move out in the world as agents of that. It is very difficult to sustain that belief and that hope in this world we live in. The sermon isn't proof of it. It's my very best seduction. I'm trying my hardest to seduce you and to just daring you. Just please try to believe it. Be a hypocrite. Take it on. Walk in a week as if this is the true story. I'm inviting you to believe this is true. That this is more true than all of the stories we're going, to be in, we're going to be inundated with when we leave this room. Look again at our gospel passage, Luke 3, verse 21 through 28. Notice something. It's in verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Which, by the way, is not for the mathematicians. It's for the storytellers. Who else started their kingship at 30? David, who else started to lead Israel out of Egypt and and to lead them while they were in bondage in Egypt at 30? Joseph, that's supposed to push you back. Every line, every phrase, pushing you back, daring you. Please believe this story. And then it says, being the son as was supposed of Joseph. Luke, the author of this gospel, loves that verb, as was supposed. He uses it at key moments in the story in the life of Jesus and in the story of the church in Acts. He uses it in key moments and he's always negative with it. Except one of his uses. Only one of his uses is not like this. But all of the other uses, he's talking about an assumption 
wrongly made that leads people to act as if that assumption were true and it wrecks their lives. In other words, you can view Jesus as an ordinary human, the son of Joseph, but it'll wreck your life because he's not. He's the son of God. The story of the world that we're being dared to believe this morning To believe that this story is the true story. I invite you to try it on. Walk around in it. Go back to your jobs. To your homes. To your streets. To your friends. Looking at the world through the lens of this story. Take Luke's invitation. Believe that this world is a world in which human beings were made for God. That he is our original desire and our deepest pleasure and our truest home. And yet because of sin, we are estranged from him. And this estrangement is the sorrow at the heart of all of our sorrows. But the story of the Bible teaches that because of his great love for us, God came to us in Jesus Christ. And he did this so that those who are estranged from him can once again be reunited with him. And please him. And know that we please him. And and hear from his lips that we please him. It's through the life and death. The crucifixion and the resurrection. That we can be restored to God. Believe that. Believe that. That it's not through your efforts. That it's not through your foibles or your victories. But it is through Jesus in this moment that we who have become enemies of God and exiles from heaven may now become children of God and friends of the high king himself. I invite you to believe in this story that at creation humanity was graced with the glorious dignity of bearing God's image. And at the fall, this image, though still irrepressibly present, that it was diminished and obscured by sin. But, Through faith wrought union with Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, all who trust in him can have their minds renewed. We can reorder our affections. We can, by the power of the Spirit in union with Christ, reshape our habits. And we can redirect our vocations. And we can be restored into the glory of the image of Of Christ, the second Adam. I invite you to believe in this story that that where we are, that we can be restored to each other. In creation, God declared it was not good for humans to be alone. That we are somehow not fully ourselves until, until we are ourselves with one another. And yet at the fall, human relationships, male and female, filled with such glorious promise, they began to disintegrate. She did it. He made me do it. They collapse into the misery of aloneness. But in Jesus, this aloneness can be healed. This is because all who trust in him are joined really and truly, not only to Christ himself, but to one another as members of his body. 
It's in the Christ-shaped community of love constituted by the Spirit that God's relational intention for humanity, so broken by sin, can be realized again. And as God heals your shame, you'll be drawn into relationships more joyful and more intimate. And I invite you to believe in this story where we can be restored not only to God and not only to ourselves and not only to each other, but we can be restored to the world. The material world, it matters to God. Six times in creation, before humans ever showed up, God looked at the world like a parent looking at a baby and said, man, that's good. God's intention for this material world was an endless future of created care. Twice God said to humans, take care of it, steward it. And yet because of our sin, this world, in spite of its overwhelming beauty, has become a place of futility and exploitation. But in Jesus, the material ravages of sin will be washed away. When the prophets talk about what life will be like in the new city, in the new heavens, in the new earth, they say it will be a place where deserts Bring life and fields are fruitful and trees are so joyful their limbs clap like a child. And then Jesus comes along and his ministry is marked not only by words of spiritual forgiveness but by works of material restoration. The healing of illness, the creation of wine, the calming of storms and most dramatically the resurrection of a material body. And these, these miracles, they're not... They're not allegories of a deeper spiritual meaning. They're signs pointing to the healing of material reality. Because of this, Christians confess that this material order now groaning deeply under the curse of sin will one day be liberated, washed clean and made new. And as God heals you, you can enter into this world in all of its dimensions. And you have two primary ways of entering into this world. Your neighbors and your work. That is your primary mission in life. Your neighbors and your vocation. And the healing of shame that God gives us frees us and empowers us to be good neighbors and good workers. In the story of the Bible, we learn that shame is not something that we fix in the privacy of our own mental processes. Evil would love for us to believe that to be so. No, we con. We combat shame in the church, in the context of a, of a group filled with the Spirit, united with Christ, where shame can be brought out and loved to death. And so this is the gospel. This is the good news that makes Christianity what it is. The one true God has inaugurated his kingdom. He's inaugurated this, this, this thing. He's doing this thing. He's taken charge of the world. And through Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, the ancient hopes have been fulfilled. And in a way, nobody imagined. God put a plan into place. And he launched it in this moment with Jesus. And he grasped the world in this moment in a new way to sort it out. To fill it with his glory and justice just like he promised. And that ancient sickness that's crippled the world, the whole world. The tool that's been wielded by evil to ravage this world. The cure is here. So new life can rise in its place. 
And the good news is that that happened. And it is happening. And it will continue to happen. And so I invite you to believe this. To use every means at your disposal to immerse yourself in this, the only true story. Amen.